Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, the musician Bill Withers, was born in a place called Slab Fork, West Virginia. He grew up in a town next door called Beckley. The music industry seemed a long way away. It wasn't some place where you could have long-range dreams. Not for me, anyway. There was nothing that suited me there. I mean, uh, everybody worked in the coal mines. and and, uh, in, in other words, you can't aspire to certain things in certain places because they don't exist. You know, now if I go around, people say, what advice do you have to young people that want to be in show business? First of all, you got to get out of here. Nobody's going to come in and get you. It ain't here, you know. So it's rare that people leave there and become me. You have to have a broader vision and a bigger dream. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to the man who brought the world songs like Lean On Me, Lovely Day, and Just the Two of Us. And he'll call me out on my gotcha journalism. Something's got to be wrong with you. Something's probably wrong with you for even asking me some stuff like that. Fair point. No, it's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> I'm a broken man, yes. Mr. Withers. <laughs> Bill Withers and I will talk about talent, determination, and why he wouldn't dance. Then later, I'll talk to Joe Randazzo. He's drawn on his years of experience as a comedian, writer, and producer to compile his new book, Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. It includes advice from lots of brilliant comedy people and a few unexpected ones, like the hip-hop mogul Damon Dash. For a hot minute, Randazzo worked for it. One of his protégés was like, oh, man, I'm so tired. And Damon Dash is like, I've been tired for 10 years. <laughs> and he's like, you have to be tired if you want to be successful. Plus, I'll tell you about a great American hero, a kid speller named Harry Altman. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Bill Withers is real. His greatest songs have huge universal feelings at their heart, but they feel like he's just talking to you. He ably manages the trick at the heart of pop songwriting. Fred Rogers used to talk about it in a different context. It's to be deep and simple. Here he is singing Ain't No Sunshine on his 1972 album, Live at Carnegie Hall. Wonder this time where she's gone If she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone and This house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away But ain't no sunshine when she's gone. 
Withers started recording when he was already in his 30s, and he'd quit by the time he was 50. In between, he made indelible records like Lean on Me, Lovely Day, and Just the Two of Us, among many others. Withers was recently inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but when he was there, he let Stevie Wonder and John Legend do almost all of the singing. Bill Withers, it is great to get to talk to you again. Uh, Thank welcome. you, bud. Yeah. How does it feel when you listen to um, yourself sing live 40 years ago? About like it does when I look at uh, my third grade <laughs> class picture. You know, it's it's something that's that I used to be or used to do. First of all, I don't look like that anymore. And uh, I probably don't sound like that anymore, you know. I know I don't feel like that anymore. I feel like when I look at a picture of myself in third grade, it is a struggle for me to relate to a picture that old. And it's a little bit different from looking at something from, like, I'm in my mid-30s. Like, if I looked at a picture of myself when I was 22... I feel like I that's something I recognize more than me as an eight-year-old. Like, I barely remember me as an eight-year-old. Yeah. Do you have that kind of distance from your career as a performer? I have more distance than you have years from my <laughs> career as a performer. You, your last record came out in the mid-'80s. Right, 85. I was born in 81, so I was little. Yeah, yeah. I've never not heard myself, you know. Uh, fortunately, that stuff plays still. <laughs> so uh, I've never known it any other way. So, you know. When you were a kid, did you sing? Yeah, anybody who sings sang all their life, you know. It's not something you start doing. You know, you may start doing it for a living or you may start doing it for other people or in a different context, but. People who sing sing as little kids, everybody. Where did you sing? Wherever I was, wherever I felt like it, you know. I didn't have that organized, you know, where people have plays and all. I wasn't in any of that stuff. I was a severe stutterer until I was 30. So my social life was limited by that, or probably dictated by that, you know. I didn't want to take the risk of rejection so I basically left people alone. They did what they did, and I didn't expect to be included, you know. I only thought about growing up and getting out of there. My whole purpose was to leave where I was. I uh, I would go to the movies, and I would see other things to fantasize about, you know. I knew I didn't want to be a grown-up in that environment. There was nothing that suited me there. I mean, uh, everybody worked in the coal mines, and uh, there were coal miners, school teachers, and the occasional doctor or something, you know. It was literally a company town where you grew up, right? So that it was, it yeah, was sort of a closed Part door. of the time. The other time I grew up in a town of about 15,000. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was what it was. In, in other words, you can't aspire to certain things in certain places because they don't exist. 
you know, now if I go around, people say, what advice do you have to young people that want to be in show business? First of all, you got to get out of here. Nobody's going to come in and get you. It ain't here, you know. So it's rare that people leave there and become me. You have to have a broader vision and a bigger dream. Did you have a broader vision and a bigger dream uh, even when you were a kid or a teenager? Or could you just see that that the step was to leave town? Yeah, I knew I was better than they thought I was. And I had become accustomed to not expecting any approval or any encouragement or anything, you know. They were all gaga over the high school football game. Well, none of those guys were going to play in the NFL, but I knew that if I got a chance that I could play on the big stage, you know what I mean? You can't be major league and think minor league, you know. And this is one business you don't get into by accident. If you're in this business, believe me, you tried. You auditioned. You bounced back from rejection. You took on the uh, competition. Think about it. This is a worldwide competition. Everybody in the world is competing for the same piece of pie. So if you're going to play in this game, you'll find out but you got to put yourself on the line, you know. When you say that they didn't think that you could do it, who's included in that? I mean, Every, kids in the high everybody school. Everybody that I was around. I mean, I had no family telling me, you know, that there was anything special about me. I had nobody even suggesting to me that I could. That's why it's fun that I am, because I can look back on them and say, boy, you guys you guys got it all wrong, man. You know what I mean? And I can be, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of fun for me, you know, not to be arrogant about it, but it's kind of fun, you know, to say, yeah, you thought everybody else was cool, you know? So, uh, yeah. So any anything you try, if you try, you know, if you're going to play on in the big leagues, you got to have some perseverance, you got to have something. You got to bring something to the table. Out of the whole world, all the people that want to do this, what separates the ones that do from the ones that don't? There's a little luck, there's a little happenstance, there's a little this. But you can't discount perseverance. You know, you can't discount that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Bill Withers. He's the singer and songwriter behind classic tracks like Lovely Day and Just the Two of Us. We talked in 2015 when he was the subject of a tribute concert recorded live at Carnegie Hall. Here's a song from his 1972 album, Live at Carnegie Hall. It's called Hope She'll Be Happier. Maybe the lateness of the hour Makes me seem bluer than I am 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Bill Withers. You were in the service for a long time after high school, right? Yeah, nine years, yeah. So was the thing keeping you in the service that you had made a commitment, uh, or was it that you weren't ready to do the next thing? I was probably hiding in there, you know. It was an easy thing to do, and uh, I didn't have that many other options that I could see, you know. And uh, not having been fed a whole lot of self-esteem from outside sources, I was, you know, trying to figure it out. Then when I got to California, I said, okay, I can do California. What made you say that? Because it's California. <laughs> you know, was I, If I had gone back to West Virginia... How would I have gotten into the music business? Where would I have gone? There is no music business there. You mentioned that you stopped stuttering uh, around 30. And that's about the same time that you started recording. Um, No, it was later than that. I started recording about 32 or something like that. But, you know, one had nothing to do with the other one. Well, what changed for you in that period of your life that you felt like you could have that kind of combination of self-worth and uh, not being afraid of what other people think? No, I was born feeling that way. I just had to get around to doing it, you know. Like I say, people don't start singing at a, you know, you're born, when you come out of the womb, you hear stuff. You know, it's like people who can run fast. They're born that way. You're born with that facility. Now, uh, getting around to doing it, you know, there are a lot of things that come into play. Environment, uh, opportunity. uh, I knew what I was all my life. I knew what I thought I was. A lot of people think they are. Not everybody is. The people that are in this business really the difference between people who thought they were and couldn't and people who thought they were and could. When you were first recording demos, and the the first demos that you recorded, as I understand it, were sessions that you paid for out of your pocket that you had to save for. Yeah, all of them. Did you think you were recording songwriting demos or singer demos? I was recording something for somebody else to hear. I wasn't recording things for somebody else to sing. You know, it was for me. I wanted somebody to hear me. If I wanted to be in the music business, I figured I had to go in the music business. And the easiest way is to record yourself and say, here, listen to this. Did you say, here, listen to this in person with anyone? Was there anybody who said, okay, let's throw this this on the reel-to-reel? Always. I never send anything to anybody UPS. It's only practical to present it yourself. What are you going to do, have somebody else do it? You know, 
that's one more that's one unnecessary step in the process that's scary though plus how would you interest them what's scary to show up with what you've got and say it's a lot easier to mail it to somebody <laughs> or at the very least to walk up shake hands with them put it in their hand and walk away than it is to stand there and say okay let's press play <laughs> you know what it's like if you're that afraid you need to get a job at, you know, McDonald's or somewhere or wherever you can because if you have that kind of fear, you know, probably fear keeps more people out of this business than anything else. So, so, so some people that have immense talent are too afraid and some people that have no talent are unafraid. So if you're afraid to shoot your shot, you out of the game anyway. You just took yourself out of the game. Is fear part of what's kept you out of the business for the last 30 years or so? No, no, no. I I, I haven't been out of the business. Well, you've been you, substantially you, out of the business. You've, you written, you've, written, you've written some songs for people, and you've you've done a little bit of recording here and there, but for the most part. Yeah, but it's hard to drive around all day without hearing something that I did. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Bill Withers. He's the singer and songwriter behind classic tracks like Lovely Day and Just the Two of Us. Here's a little bit of his 1972 hit Lean on Me from his record Live at Carnegie Hall. Sometimes in our lives we all have pain we all have What do you think of most fondly from your career as a as a you know in recording and performing? You know, probably James Gadsden's garage before anybody knew who anybody was. We're just over there having fun playing because the genesis of the whole thing is you play music because you like it. And probably the most enjoyable times you'll ever have doing it is when you're doing it purely because you love it and there's no other onus placed on it. I once had a friend who invited me over to his house and he had barbecued. And I said, man, you should probably open up a barbecue joint. He says, I like cooking and I don't want to screw it up. He says, I already screwed up music by doing that for a living. Do you still get that kind of pleasure out of music? I don't know. I haven't done it in a while. Because I can never go back to that. I mean, James Katz has been playing with D'Angelo. <laughs> yeah, and Buzz Aldrin, you know, went to Tennessee last week. What's that got to do with me? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> 
I'm just saying you have the option. You can be a great drummer longer than you can be a great singer. You can lift weights longer than you can run track. Some things are have a, 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 a certain life to them, you know? Tom Lair, the uh, uh, comic singer-songwriter, had a line. He made a couple records that were bestsellers in the early 60s and then has not uh, recorded since then. He's still around in Santa Cruz. He has a great line where he says, what's the use of having laurels if you don't rest on them? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when you are getting honored in this concert, for example, yeah. in New York, do you enjoy that? No, man. Who would want to be honored by a bunch of people? Who would want that? Who would want to be honored by a bunch of a bunch of people that admire you and are very nice to you? Nah. Come on, man. It would be a waste of energy to go around disliking things that are pleasant and flattering. Think about that. Something's got to be wrong with you. Something's probably wrong with you for even asking me some stuff like that. Fair point. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> I'm a broken man, yes. Mr. Withers. <laughs> I'll continue my conversation with Bill Withers after a break. He'll talk about why he didn't dress up on stage or dance like some of his contemporaries. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Earlier this month, at Susie Susan tweeted, after downloading the NPR One app, after being told to for the thousandth time by an NPR podcast, thank you, thank you, thank you, hashtag insert shamed face here. Don't wait like Susie did. NPR One's ready to make driving, cleaning the house, or your post-holiday escape better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. The Great Questions of Your Life. The Great Questions of Your Life. Should you put ketchup on a hot dog? Put ketchup on a hot dog. Toilet paper over or under? Toilet paper. Star Wars, Star Wars or Star Trek? Or Star Trek. Fear not, my friends. Fear not, Mark my and friends. Hal always reach the definitive answer. Simply listen to We Got This with Mark and Hal every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Pacific on Maximum Fun. Fun. We Got This. Your better self is right around the corner. Namaste. 1A is NPR's new daily show, inspired by the First Amendment. 1A is the news with those who make the news, great guests, and topical debate, all framed in ways to make you think and engage. Every day, 1A will champion your right to speak freely. Check out 1A with Joshua Johnson from WAMU and NPR on the NPR One app or visit npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bill Withers. Here's a bit of his 1972 album, Live at Carnegie Hall. This is Grandma's Hands. Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well, whoa. Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast Might fall on a piece of glass Might be snakes there in the grass Grandma's hands Grandma's hands 
You know, the first time we spoke, you were talking about uh, the movie Soul Power, which was a documentary that was shot at the Ali Foreman fight, and it was 1975 in Zaire, 74, something like that. And the bill on this show was um, there was a big concert surrounding this fight. Sure. And you performed on the show. Uh, James Brown was there. uh, The Fania All-Stars were there. The Spinners were there. I can't name every single act that was on there, but it was a pretty amazing lineup, right? And I was thinking the other day about that show and thinking like, you know, Celia Cruz is coming out in front of the Fania All-Stars and she's wearing a Celia Cruz outfit. You know, I don't remember specifically, but probably like a 10-foot feather on her head. And the spinners are, by that point, you know, they'd had whatever it was, 10 years at Motown and five years out of Motown. And, uh, you know, they can all sing their butts off, but they're also all wearing these amazing outfits and doing these moves and so on and so forth. And then James Brown is, uh, you know, at the peak of being the GFOS, the godfather of soul, you know, with a jumpsuit that has a name on it and the whole nine yards, right? And you're out there with a guitar, and I wonder if when you, especially when you started, but also when you chose to continue that way, if you thought of the ways that you were different from what else was out there. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but that... Let me give you something to consider. Mm-hmm. All those acts you've mentioned, great acts, right? Sure. I was probably the only person that you could take his songs without the music and read it from the printed page. So my thing was more about content than context. I mean, I wasn't going to dance because I don't know if I can or not. It doesn't suit my personality. In the environment that I grew up in, it was condescending to dance. It was almost like Tommen or something, you know. So I wasn't going to do that because my my socialization wouldn't allow it. I wasn't going to wear a purple suit because my socialization wouldn't allow it. Those were clown clothes. So that wasn't my path. My path was trying to be taken seriously as a thinking person. You know, when I was in the Navy, I was an aircraft mechanic. They desegregated the Navy in 1948. I went in in 1956. That ain't very far. That's eight years up the road. How difficult do you think it was for us to convince somebody that we could work on an airplane, even though it consisted mostly of draining oil out of the damn thing? But the way people put you down is they have an exalted opinion of themselves. So part of having an exalted opinion of yourself is you have to claim that other people are intellectually inferior to you. And a great part of my life was dealing with that demon, you know. So, uh, no, I wouldn't wear a purple suit and dance around because that didn't prove any of the points I wanted to prove. But if I could write music with some content to it, I get letters where people say, I buried my grandfather and we played Lean on Me or, 
you know, we got married, I used just the two of us. You know what I mean? You can't bury nobody off of Papa's got a brand new bag. Now, I love James Brown. He's my man. <laughs> but that's not what I was doing. He wanted to dance around and do the splits. One of the biggest troubles I almost got into when I went to a new record company is they had a convention and uh, there were two acts that were out in the middle of the floor, two black acts, of course, and they were dancing and everybody was gathered around in the circle clapping hands and this guy started pushing me by my elbows and says, get out there and dance for us. I said, I'm going to dance off in your ass if you don't get your hands off of me. <laughs> so that's just not my way. I don't walk like that. Well, I'm really grateful that you took the time to come back uh, on the show. I'm well, a pleasure to get to talk to you. I'll ask this last question because sure. they always ask me this. Sure. What do you want your legacy to be? I didn't ask you that, though, Mr. Weathers. No, but it was coming. You heard? No, you, so no it was not coming. It, so. I chose all of the questions I that know. I asked. Well, I chose gonna, not I'm to ask that one. Anyway. I already know what if, my legacy is going to be. I'm living it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm giving you well, thank you very much. It's really an honor to get to have you on the show. Thank you. I mean that for real. Thank you. No, no problem. <laughs> Bill Withers recorded in 2015. There's a video of the tribute show that was performed in Withers' honor at Carnegie Hall on our website. It featured performances from D'Angelo, Aloe Black, Michael McDonald, Ladisi, Gregory Porter, and many others. Check it out. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Joe Randazzo's been an improviser, a stand-up comedian, the editor of The Onion, the head of a web video startup for Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Now he's the head writer of Comedy Central's At Midnight. That's most of the jobs you can have in comedy. His new book explains how to get them, plus a bunch of others. It's called Funny on Purpose, A Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. Joe Randazzo, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for having me. So here's the thing, Joe. My understanding is that people hate anyone who teaches anyone how to be in comedy in a nice way and hate anyone who ever took a class or tried to learn something in any other way other than the school of hard knocks. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's traditionally been the approach. Uh, there's this kind of uh, secret society of comedians who... Because everybody's route is a little bit different and everybody's own personal demons are a little bit different. And, there, and there's this kind of ethos, especially I think among stand-up comedians, of you can't take any shortcuts. That maybe that kind of an idea of here's how you can do it um, represents a, a sort of disgusting shortcut. I think people, people sort of want to share their suffering. Yeah, they want to share your suffering and you must have endured suffering of your own that is calculated and um, can be compared to the suffering of others. You went to broadcasting school. You thought you were going to be a broadcaster? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I always wanted to be in comedy, but it seemed like the kind of thing that would never be possible because there was no book for it. 
And also there was no major or, or anything like that in comedy, although Emerson College, where I went, I think if they haven't yet, they're going to soon start a comedy major, which I don't know if that's cool or dumb. It seems like the way that most people get into comedy is they get the idea that they're going to get into comedy and they start hanging around somewhere. Yeah. Was that your experience? Um, yeah, I think so. I didn't have the foresight to recognize that as a actual technique that does work. Um, but I, uh, I was dating um, a woman who was a stand-up and did improv in New York, and she recommended that I start taking improv classes. So I went to this place called the Magnet Theater in New York, um, which seemed a little less clicky to me than the UCB, although if I'd done the UCB, I'd be on Parks and Rec right now, although that show just got canceled. Um, and I started doing improv I started doing improv there, and it was like immediately a huge relief and release and just really enriching and felt wonderful and was unlike anything I'd ever done before. And it also happened that some of the people in my class, one of them was the was a former editor-in-chief of The Onion. One of them was a an editor at that time. And then um, so it's Carol Kolb and Amy Baradale and then Carol's boyfriend, Tony Kameen, who's also a great stand-up comedian. So all these people were in my class. I didn't know who they were or anything, but sort of meeting them and getting to know them and, and, and developing my own sense of, uh, you know, self-confidence in comedic ability. Uh, it was a great way to, to start and sort of just get a sense of like, oh, this is something that people can do because here are these people. I know them. We get up on stage together and have fun. And how did they get into it? And how did this all work out for them? And then eventually Amy left to go to India and she recommended me for the job at The Onion because I'd been submitting headlines for a few months before that. And I tested for it. I test edited a story and then got the job. In what ways was The Onion what you imagined it would be and in what ways was it different? Well, I think one of the things about The Onion, especially in these days, this would have been 2006. So it was kind of before social media was all anyone ever did. And when there was still some mystery to certain things in the world, unlike now when nothing is mysterious anymore, no one knew anything about The Onion. Nobody knew. I didn't know who was involved. I didn't know who wrote it. You know, there's no bylines. It's just this sort of overpowering, omniscient voice. So I just imagined that it would be uh, – I, I pictured everyone being a little bit older than they were, and I pictured everyone being a little bit meaner than they were, just because there's that sense of – mystery to it. And so just naturally, I assume if I don't know someone, they're mean. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? And they're probably better than me, and I'm probably a sham, and they'll probably figure that out very quickly, um, which the audience is doing with us now. Um, and then, <laughs> and it was, it was, uh, it was, as I imagined, in that it was um, very fun and very, uh, very, everybody was very funny. And it was just it was pretty exciting, you know, because it was we were still set to the um, the weekly publication schedule in those days. So even though we were publishing online, we still it was still like putting out a weekly newspaper. So there was this sense of deadline and there was this sense of, you know, rushing news items. And on a, on big news days, it was actually pretty exciting because we would have to rearrange things and emergency pitch headlines to address the death of somebody or. Uh, some horrible tragedy or whatever. So that that part of it was really exciting, kind of tied to the aspect of news that I really enjoyed. Were you doing stand-up at the time? Uh, on and off, yeah. 
But I, I pretty much, I mean, my job was assistant editor. I, that was the job I came in having, and it was very all-encompassing for me. So that's when I sort of started uh, relaxing the amount of stand-up that I did. Was it difficult for you to uncouple uh, funniness from performance? How do you mean? Well, I mean, if you have an idea for a joke as a stand-up or as an improviser, it comes from your voice and is expressed in a way that uh, only you would express it through a set of performance skills. Um, when you are writing for uh, The Onion or for At Midnight, you are either writing for someone else's voice or for an institutional voice mm-hmm. in the case of The Onion. And they are, you know, At Midnight is going to be performed, but, um, you know, The Onion, there's no performance involved. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I um, was able to sort of rise up at the onion and, you know, maybe part of the reason why I have the job I have now, which is I can sort of, not that I can necessarily mimic a voice, but I think I very quickly grasp the key components of a voice and can actually, I think I'm a little better at making other people's jokes fit that voice and sort of giving something, giving a, a complete issue of the onion or a complete episode of At Midnight a sort of holistic feel. And kind of intrinsically understand what does or does not feel on voice. Um, after a couple of years of doing this at The Onion, though, I did get back into stand-up because I felt like I was not there. There were not very many opportunities for me to express myself individually, uh, creatively. And when you get when you're writing headlines every week, which I did not do, incidentally, um, a lot of my job was you know editing took up most of that job. I would do it sometimes, but not every week. But when you are doing it with that consistency, you do start to see the world through that voice of the onion. And that's why I think writers are so successful at pulling stuff. You know, a, a lot of the, the best headlines from the onion or the ones I enjoy the most are sort of doing a lot of the same stuff that a good observational comedian will do is just pull something banal from your everyday life and blow it up into a news headline with some fresh or interesting angle I'll finish my conversation with Joe Randazzo after a break. He'll talk about the epitaph he commissioned from Deep Thoughts creator Jack Handy. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, if you've been enjoying Bullseye and you want to keep it going, the best way to do that is to throw a little support to your local NPR station. That support allows us to keep doing our thing. Go to stations.npr.org. Find your local stations. Donate what you can. Tell them that Bullseye sent you. Thank you so much to those of you who have already done this. Again, that's stations.npr.org. If you love podcasts, comedy, and creativity, and you're looking for some new friends to share them with, why not check out MaxFunCon 2017? MaxFunCon is a chance to get away from it all, spend a weekend laughing, and return inspired to create amazing things. Join us for MaxFunCon in Lake Arrowhead in June or MaxFunCon East in the Poconos in September and prepare yourself for one of the best weekends of your life. Tickets are on sale now at MaxFunCon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Joe Randazzo. His book is called Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. Here's the rest of our conversation from 2015. When you started writing this book, and my guest is Joe Randazzo, and his book is called Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy, what were the parts of the comedy world that you, a former improviser, current television writer, uh, 
onion writer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, stand-up, knew the least about? Probably YouTube, the the sort of technical side of podcasting. And by technical, I don't just mean how it it doesn't physically do anything really, right? How it electronically works and then sort of what are some good techniques to maintain a podcast and uh, illustration, I would say. Um, And then some of the stuff about like what do producers do in film comedy? You know, how does the business side of it work? Um, I'd say those are the areas I sort of knew the the least about. And then I was also just really interested because I have – I, w- I would never call myself a stand-up comedian. I've done it on and off for many years, but I've never done it as a as a main income source. I've never been a touring comedian. You know, there's a lot of stuff like I, like I research and talk to people who do comedy on cruise ships, for instance, and stuff like that. Sort of find the little alleyways that there are that other people wind up taking that you might not expect. So there's a lot of that stuff that I did not know about just for lack of experience. One of the things that I was most kind of touched by in reading the book is the book is interspersed with interviews with people from the comedy industry. Um, And there's an interview with Paul F. Tompkins, the stand-up comedian and uh, television host and actor and et cetera. Um, And one of the things that Paul said was- also a murderer. Is he? I did not. I should have brought that up last time he was on the the show because I have never- I I wonder what it would be like to take a man's life. I don't know if it's- men or women he's killing. Um, So uh, one of the things that Paul said is that, you know, when you are working in a career, especially in entertainment, it is very easy to think about what the next level is all the time Mm -hmm. rather than think about uh, what is nice and good about the thing that you are doing now. And when you talk about like a cruise ship comedian or something like that, what what are the places in comedy where people make a living and find satisfaction that someone out there who doesn't work in the comedy industry might not have thought of? Well, that's one of them. I think a lot of comedians do wind up writing. And now there's, you know, as you well know, more opportunities than ever for people to kind of create their own brand, for lack of a better word, and to kind of create their own broadcasting conglomerate, for lack of a better two words. Um, But but I think what Paul says is extremely wise, because what I've found through my own personal experience and through talking to other people is that you can get success by being viciously ambitious and sort of just focused on where you are headed. But the people who seem to be the most satisfied, the people who seem to have had the most happy coincidences occur to them that lead to success are the people who support those around them, who are actively happy for their friends and colleagues when they get work. And you have to kind of train yourself to do that because jealousy, I think, for most people is the first knee-jerk reaction. It's one of the worst emotions, but I think it's an interesting one to explore when you experience it. And I talk about in the book how important it is especially when you're starting out in comedy, um, and this is particularly uh, for performative comedy, to make friends with other people who are doing it and to take an active interest in how they're doing because you need them because you're going to be filled with times of failure and times of self-doubt and times of, you know, tears uh, and, uh, and poverty 
And if you can provide support for those people, they'll provide it for you. And whether or not you wind up where you think you want to wind up, if you're able to kind of stop every once in a while, as Paul says, and look at where you are, if you've been honest with yourself and been supportive of others, you'll find that you're part of a great community doing something that you love. And if you're lucky, um, making a career out of it. If someone is 19 right now and listening to this show Mm -hmm. and they want to throw their hat into the comedy ring, but they don't have any idea what is their thing, certainly they can buy a copy of Joe Randazzo's uh, Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. Mm -hmm. But what is the first step? I think you just have to do something. And there are so many different ways that you can do things. You can write a Tumblr. You can just open a Twitter account. You can start making videos of some kind on YouTube. You can try to make a podcast. I think you just got to start something and then do it for a while. Stick to it and do it for a while and see if you like it. Don't worry if you're attracting a big audience right away. Don't worry if if it feels dumb. Just doing something with regularity will provide you with experience, it'll provide you with confidence, and you'll start to develop a voice. I think even after, even if you do, you know, something that I started doing on YouTube was um, I have a six-year-old son who's really into Legos, and he watches like 35-minute-long Lego reviews of grown men who <laughs> literally hold the box and say, here's the box, it's blue, you can see the back of the box here, and then they just open it and show you everything. So I started sort of doing a parody of those. And even after doing three of them, I found that I was homing in on what this character's voice really was. So I think that's something super important and just building the discipline within yourself of saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to complete it. And then you do that once and you feel better. You do it two times, you feel twice as good, three times, you feel three times as good, and then you will plateau. And that's when it's really important to just sort of keep pushing. But to not really worry about what it is or, or saying to yourself, oh, this is it. This is definitely it. Just doing something is helpful. How do you know if you've failed? I don't know. I think that's a personal thing that um, sort of like, you know, what you were quoting Paul as having said and talking about. But I think you have to be able to look at your life as a whole. You know, at the end of the book, I sort of end it on this exercise that I do sometimes um, where you imagine yourself on your deathbed. And, you know, it's a peaceful surrounding. You, you're, you're, you're in a, a quiet, restful setting, and you're let's just assume that you've lived a good life and you're not about to be electrocuted for murder like Paul F. Tompkins probably will be someday. Should I spend the rest of the interview insinuating that Paul's a murderer or not? I mean, you're pretty much explicitly saying it. You're not really insinuating. Yeah, you're right. So you picture yourself on on your deathbed and and you try to imagine what it is that you're looking back upon with pride or what it is that you're regretting. And I think if you can do that with yourself every once in a while as a way to sort of check in with yourself, you it gives you a chance to stop comparing yourself to others and to stop 
comparing yourself to an ideal that does not exist in any world and will never exist for you because it only exists in others or it exists in some sort of fictitious version of the world. Um, so being able to see that every once in a while can give you a real uh, instrument for gauging whether you're succeeding or failing. But I think if you're doing what you love to do, you feel like you're doing good work and you're surrounded by people who you like and who like you and who you feel that you can rely on for support, There's that's some degree of success. To call that failure, I think, would be ridiculous. Um, but also people need to motivate themselves in, in different ways. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't argue with somebody that they're successful if they don't believe they are, but I think you have to have perspective. You close the book by talking about thinking about your own deathbed. Mm -hmm. Is that something that comes naturally to you? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've always been preoccupied with with death. I think a lot of comedians probably have. and it's also an exercise that uh, that comes out of some some Buddhist training, which is to, to sort of uh, to think about that, you know, to have that sense of change and infinitude, and to realize that you're not going to live forever. You don't have all the time in the world to do the things that you want to accomplish. So that gives you a sense of urgency, but also hopefully gives you a, an ability to to kind of be present and think about what you have done and what you do have. You hired the probably the funniest man in the Taos, New Mexico area, Jack Handy. Um, Taos, if I'm remembering correctly, somewhere in New Mexico. Yeah, he's, I think he might be in Albuquerque. Albuquerque, there you go. You hired the funniest man in the Albuquerque, New Mexico area to write a, an epitaph for you. Mm. Um, and I wonder if I wonder if you would take a second to read it. It's the it's the last thing in the book. Sure, Joe Randazzo. The world's second oldest man has died of natural causes, leaving Jack Handy as still the world's oldest man. Obituary by Jack Handy. (laughs) Well, Joe Randazzo, uh, I wish you and Jack Handy the best of luck. Thank you. Joe Randazzo is the author of Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. It's a comprehensive guide to uh, almost every form of comedy there is and sort of how it works, uh, including interviews with many, many brilliant comedy creators, ranging from Joan Rivers to Judd Apatow to Jack Handy, and there's even one in there with a comedy podcast impresario named Jesse Thorne. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. You know, They say there are no heroes left in American life. But I, Jesse Thorne, disagree. I have a hero. He's a kid speller, and his name is Harry Altman. The word is bands. With a D sound or without a D sound? Um, you said it's a homonym, and you tell me what it means, but am I allowed to ask what its homonym means? All right, I'm starting over. B, A, N, D, what I have so far is B, A, N, D. I don't know if that was a great idea, but 
Oops, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Oh, well. Harry Altman is one of the stars of Spellbound, a 2002 documentary that followed a group of kids through the Scripps National Spelling Bee. These are pretty regular kids. They're exceptional in some ways, a little smarter than average and, you know, willing to spend their free time sitting around studying how to spell stuff. But mostly they're pretty normal. In fact, the most remarkable thing about them is that they're willing to subject themselves to this crazy barrage of words. Speller 21. Cultivation. Cultivation. C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-I-O-N. Cultivation. Comedian. C-O-M-E-D-I-A-N. Comedian. P-O-D-A-N-T-I-C. Correct spelling. P-E-D-A-N-T-I-C. Correct spelling. R-A-P-P-E-L-L-E-D. Could I have spellers 21 and 24 to the mic, please? Angstrom's. Spelling is a pretty arbitrary skill. Nowadays, it's almost archaic. So why is it so moving to see these kids struggle their way through these contests? I mean, the arbitrariness of it is part of the appeal, isn't it? Sure, it doesn't really measure anything but application, like how many flashcards you looked at. But I think that for a lot of kids, just to have a fair fight seems special. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that a lot of these kids are immigrants, for example. You can get a sense of belonging in America, outside of India, which you don't get anywhere else. We wanted our children to have that. They are part of this community. People accept them for who they are and can look beyond differences, you know, to find things that are common. Or that some of these kids are a little weird. I think this is going to open some doors for him to realize, hey, there's a lot of people out there that are like me. I will be able to fit in. You know, there may not be a lot of them, and they're not going to be. When I was a kid, I actually had a friend who was in the National Spelling Bee. I was in sixth grade. He was one of the smartest kids I have ever known, but he hated school. I think it felt like a rigged game to him. And honestly, I don't think he even particularly cared about spelling. I think he just liked that in a spelling contest, he knew what the rules were. He finally actually ended up on ESPN, the national finals. They're televised. And he got to a word he couldn't spell. And he asked all the different questions you can ask, like what part of speech is it and what language of origin does it come from and so on and so forth. And then after he got through all of those, he uh, asked the contest host if he could buy a vowel, which I thought was pretty good. It was basically the highlight of his life up to that point. I mean, I, he was like a friend of mine, and it was the highlight of my life up to that point. It's so easy to empathize with these kids. It's in your brain chemistry. Some of them in Spellbound are rich, some are poor. They're different races, different genders. But the reason the climax is so exciting, the reason it's so thrilling to see a kid win that thing, is that when they win... They win fair and square. The rules are simple. Anybody can get their hands on a dictionary. It's kind of like the America we wish we had. Hard work is rewarded directly. 
Judging from Facebook, my friend from elementary school is ambivalent about spelling bees these days. Not just because everybody has spell checks on their computer, but because it seems like kind of a weird thing to put kids through. And I can see that. Losing is hard. Studying is boring. But it's hard for me to tamp down my enthusiasm for this one kid from the documentary. I just read on Wikipedia that he's not a kid anymore. He grew up and got a Ph.D. in mathematics, focusing on something called integer complexity, which is very admirable. But has a special meaning to me. I'll always love him. This one thing he says in the movie, just a perfect sentence. All of the awkwardness and hopefulness of childhood wrapped up in a couple of words. Colin, if you would, could you play that clip? Does this sound like a musical robot? Oh, man, I love that. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He got help from producer Christian Duenas. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Kara Hart. Senior producer, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan. Thanks also to the Go Team and to their label Memphis Industries, who gave us our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in pop culture, hosted by the brilliant and hilarious comedian, Guy Branham. Find Pop Rocket wherever you download podcasts. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.